Before we get started today, I just want to let you know that we're going to be talking about loss and death and grief. And this, of course, may bring up memories that you have that are painful of losses you've experienced, or it might just remind you of everything that's going on at the moment in a way that you find quite overwhelming. And so if you just think, I just don't want to, I don't want to connect with this right now, I understand. And if you want to check out, feel free to do so. But I'd love to encourage you to stay because I really believe that God wants to speak to you today. And I really want, I really believe that God wants to help you speak to him about what you've experienced. And he wants to help deepen your relationship with him and your trust in him. One of my previous jobs, I used to walk from home to work and back again through an old graveyard like this one. I did that primarily because it was the quickest way uh, to get uh, to work, but also because it was really peaceful. And one of the other things I found that through, by walking past gravestones day after day after day, uh, it just was a constant reminder of the reality of death. As we continue our series looking at how the first Christians uh, followed Jesus in their everyday lives, we're going to be looking at how they responded to death today. And I think given everything that's happening in our world at the moment and all the loss that we're experiencing in our own lives, I think this is a really helpful and timely subject for us. The scene that we're going to be looking at now is horrific. One of the early church leaders, Stephen, is being attacked by a mob because he's telling them about Jesus. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against all the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. This is God's word. But what does that word lamentation mean? That's going to be the focus of our time together. I believe God wants to teach us how to lament. So why don't you, wherever you are, just ask God to help you with that right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the God of life. And we thank you that you have tasted death. And so you're able to help us to understand these things. Thank you that you've come to us, that we could know you, have a relationship with you. And Lord, lament is part of that. So would you please give us grace now to understand this and to apply it to our lives so that we might know you better, trust you more and glorify you more happily and joyfully and truthfully. Amen. The Bible teaches us that there is a fundamental disorder in creation. Even though it was made by God and continues to show much of his goodness and uh, his handiwork, it is not as it should be. Because humans have rebelled against God, the giver of life, we have been, we've become enslaved to death. And this doesn't affect just us, it affects all of creation. Coronavirus and the lockdown have reminded us how fragile life is, how easily uh, it can be uh, radically altered or ended. All of us have experienced loss over the past few months. Some of it serious, uh, some of it seemingly trivial but important to us. 
And so all of us are grieving uh, in one way or another or in many ways. The Bible is not shocked or rocked by any of this. It confronts the reality of loss and death from the second page all the way through to the last. And it gives us great hope, as we'll see later on. It also gives us a way to respond to the pain and misery that we experience and that we witness. That's what happened when those who buried Stephen did so with great lamentation, as Luke says. What does that mean? Well, the first Christians were almost all Jewish. And in chapter four of Acts, we see them uh, responding in prayer to persecution by praying to God from the Psalms. I am certain that as they buried Stephen and responded to what happened to him, they went to the Psalms again. Because over a third of the 150 Psalms that are in the Bible are laments. That is, they are written by or for someone or some people who are suffering. Maybe that percentage surprises you. Andrew Wilson, in the book that he and his wife Rachel wrote about parenting autistic children called The Life You Never Expected, puts it like this. Up until I was about 30, I couldn't fathom why so many of the Psalms were about pain. Now I'm 35 and I can't fathom why so many of them are about something else. For me, that turning point came when I was about 35. And I'd like to tell you something about that now. My wife, Deb, and I had and continue to have an incredibly blessed life. But a few years ago, a number of things, major things, uh, happened that grieved us and continue to grieve us. It started with a series of very hard events, including work challenges, uh, sickness and uh, divorce that was very close to us. And then my dad, seemingly a very healthy guy in his mid-60s, became ill and was diagnosed with an aggressive cancer. We went and stayed with him and with the rest of my family uh, to help care for him and to care for each other as all his strength just drained away. And less than a month after his diagnosis, he died. This caused us to put the adoption process that we were on at that time on pause. When we returned to it, we were asked to consider adopting a, an as yet unborn baby. And so we joined an antenatal class and we bought all the baby stuff that you need and we uh, built a nursery. And we went to meet him in a hospital in the middle of the night when he was born. And we took him home and we cared for him and we adored him and we welcomed him into our family and our church and Deb's small group. And then his birth family circumstances changed and he was suddenly taken away from us. And we hope and pray that this was good news for him. But we have no way of knowing what's happening in his life now, and we probably never will. I don't really know how to describe to you how awful that all was. As someone said after they had a scan which confirmed a miscarriage, this is why it's so much easier not to love anything, because then your heart can never get broken. But Christians are called to love. 
And so when we suffer loss, we grieve. And as you do with yours, so we do with ours, we live with these losses. It has been and continues to be emotionally exhausting. Uh, we received so much love and practical help from people, which was really wonderful. But grief can be very isolating because it's hard for others to understand what you're going through. And it's really easy for them to accidentally or thoughtlessly really hurt things that are still very sensitive to you. The joys that we have been blessed with since that time are wonderful, but they, they don't change the pain of what we've lost. And fresh grief can appear and old griefs reappear without warning and certainly not at our convenience. And this is what life is like when we suffer loss. How have we responded to this? Well, we've grieved. We've cried. We've talked... Uh, Deb and I together whenever one of us is needed to about how we're feeling, what we're missing. We've opened our hearts to a few trusted friends as well. We've read about the experiences of others to try to uh, get that empathy or sympathy, uh, to get wisdom and perspective and encouragement. My emotional health was just battered and so I, I tried my best to keep my physical health in a good place because I know that those two things kind of impact each other. We let ourselves be distracted by other things. You can't live with this level of stuff constantly. Your brain just can't cope with it. Maybe you've noticed this about lockdown. You, you just want to break from it. You just want to stop having to think about it and having to consider it. And, and, and so you, you, know, you watch something or you read something or you just busy yourself in another way so that that is, at least for a while, out of your thoughts. We've also, of course, used God's word to help us pray, and I'll say more about that in a few moments. But this leads us uh, onto the subject of lament and how to do it. I'm not really sure that we did necessarily lament. Um, but in my studying since, I've realized that it's something that God does want us to do. And all of us right now, as we uh, face uh, this virus and its consequences and we experience loss, we all have things that we need to grieve. And I think we need to learn to lament, to deal with them. And we are going to face more things in the future. However soon or if uh, we get back to normal, normal still involves suffering. It still involves loss. And there's more about this than I can say uh, in just a few minutes we've got. So I've put a bunch more resources in uh, the notes for small groups, which I'd love for you to dig into in your own time. But let me talk now about how to lament. Like I said, over a third of the Psalms in the Bible are laments, and they give us a pattern that we can follow, a three-stage process of lament. The first stage is this. It is to come to God. Lots of Christians, particularly in churches like ours, they shy away from lament. Perhaps it's because we're ashamed of not having everything all together uh, or that there are dark thoughts that have crept into our mind because of our sorrows. 
We suspect that it's a lack of faith that makes us cry or be confused or to be hurt and to only want to talk about the hurt and what's hard rather than what's good. I think the assumption is, well, Jesus is alive, so shouldn't we be okay? And our almost always upbeat Sunday worship can exacerbate that kind of trepidation, can't it? But coming to God with sorrows that you want to weep about, coming to him perplexed, coming to him angry, these are all acts of faith because they are coming to him. When we say to him, I am so upset, we are believing that he hears us. When we ask him why he has allowed something so terrible to happen, we are believing that he is good and powerful. So the first thing to do is to come to God. The second thing to do is to tell him what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Again and again in the Psalms, we see a level of honesty uh, that might shock us. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 31, my life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. Psalm 44, you have rejected us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. All this has come upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. You crushed us. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Lament involves grief and protest. And God invites this. That's why these Psalms are in God's word for us. So we combine these ideas of grief and protest in questions like, what is happening? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why have you done this? Where are you? Why don't you help? Don't you care? Now, these questions might seem dangerous. They might almost seem blasphemous. Are we doubting God? But remember who they are addressed to. They're addressed to God. They are still expressing faith. So in your grief, come to him. Tell him what you've lost. Tell him what coronavirus has made you lose or miss out on or what it's put at risk. Tell him what you've lost because of injustice. Tell him what you've lost because of your own foolish choices. Tell him what you've lost because of what he has or hasn't done or allowed you to do. Tell him how this feels, how it's made you feel, what it's made you think. We don't want to get stuck in grief and protest, but we mustn't avoid it either. By giving us a a, a pathway, as it were, The Psalms and other places in God's word where uh, complaints and fears and worries are expressed, they they bring us safely through the journey that God wants us to go on as we grieve and as we lament. And the third stage 
of that process, having come to God and having told him what is happening and how we're thinking and feeling about it, we're to declare our trust in him. Almost every psalm of lament ends with a a statement of renewed trust. Psalm 13, for example, says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, none of these psalms record the problem being solved or the loss being uh, amended or the pain having diminished. But the psalmist is telling themselves that God is good. And there's something about how they have come to him and told him that uh, it's created a, a place of faith for them to express their pain, but also to express their hope. And sooner or later, his goodness will be evident again in their lives. They're believing that. I'd like to finish by telling you uh, two of the ways uh, in which I have declared my trust in God, even in the midst of grief. The first thing I, uh, I have done and continue to do um, is use some verses of the Bible to dominate my thinking when it goes haywire. Um, particularly when this was all happening, all these horrible things were happening. Usually it was at night when there, was no more, there were no more distractions uh, and I just had my sadness and my fears and my memories and, and these, they just felt overwhelming. And I didn't have the emotional energy to, to think of things to say and to, to give answers and, uh, and responses to, to, to what my emotions were, were doing and saying. And there aren't answers in some cases. The doctor and preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you're always either listening to lies or telling yourself truth. And so I I realised I needed to have some truth in my head for when those moments came. Now, perhaps I short-circuited the lament process, but by not bringing those thoughts to God, I I think that's possible. But I still found it extremely helpful to recite a few verses again and again in my head at those times to state my trust in God. I've brought you to one of my favourite places in Edinburgh. It's the view that you get after you have cycled up a really long uh, incline around the back of Arthur's seat along Queen's Drive. And it's painful on your legs and the wind blows against you sometimes and you're just tired and weary. But when you get to this point, you know that the next section is a really fun and fast downhill. People often try to console us when we're suffering by saying that God will use it for good. And by that, they often mean that God will bring about something else in this life that will kind of compensate us or console us for what's happened. And that may be true, but it's not, it's not useful information most of the time to people who are grieving, particularly at a graveside. And it's right that we should want things to be fixed and want things to be better, because that is how God made the world to be. But if we keep our focus on this life and expect things to get better in this life only, we will miss one of the greatest goods that God can use our suffering for, which is to turn our attention from this age to the one to come. I try to use this moment when I'm on uh, this bike ride to remind myself of it, that though life now is a struggle, it's difficult, I'm weak, it feels uphill, there is a moment coming when it will all change. When all the weakness and pain and sorrow and frustration of this life will be gone. And and a new life will begin, filled to overflowing with joy. 
When Jesus talked about his death and resurrection, he said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This resurrection shape of Jesus' story is the shape of our story as well. It's the journey that the Psalms take us along and the Psalms of lament in particular. Psalm 30 says, You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my funeral clothes and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. That's why Stephen could cry as the rocks hit his body, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's why Luke describes Stephen's death as falling asleep. Because Stephen, like all those who die believing in Jesus, will rise again to be with him forever. This is the happy ending. This is the goodness which God has promised us and which we will not lose. Whatever losses you have experienced or are experiencing, let's learn to lament. Let's come to God. Tell him what has happened and how you're feeling about it, what you're thinking about it. Don't hide or pretend or ignore him or it. But don't stay there. As you do so and as you reflect on his goodness, renew your trust in him. Praise him again, not just for his goodness now, but more importantly, for the goodness that is to come. We need to learn to do this again and again and again. And as we do so, our faith will deepen that God is with us, listening to us, caring for us.